Hello, mad doctors and parties of the first part and all the ships at sea, and welcome to A Very Good Year, the movie podcast where we invite a guest to pick their favorite year of movies and talk to us about that year. I'm your host, Jason Bailey, and across the mic and across the country from me is my co-host... Michael Hull. Our guest today, uh, this is exciting, our guest today is an actual legend, uh, one of the all-time great film critics and historians, uh, the author of countless books, including the Disney films, Our Gang, The Life and Times of the Little Rascals, Leonard Maltin's Movie Crazy, Hooked on Hollywood, Discoveries from a Lifetime of Film Fandom, and of course, the annual Leonard Maltin's Movie Guide. His most recent book is the memoir, Starstruck, My Unlikely Road to Hollywood. Uh, For the last 25 years, he has been teaching at the USC School of Cinematic Arts. For 30 years, he was the film critic for Entertainment Tonight. These days, he reviews new and classic movies at LeonardMalton.com and on his wonderful podcast, Malton on Movies, which he hosts with his delightful daughter, Jessie. Folks, please welcome the one, the only, Leonard Malton. Mr. Malton, it's a genuine thrill to have you on the show. Thank you so much for doing this. Very flattering. Anything that boosts my ego... Uh, these days, that's my full endorsement. <laughs> well, great. Well, you deserve to have it properly boosted. Um, let's get right to it. What year did you select to discuss with us tonight and why? I selected 1935. I was not alive when that year okay. uh, rolled around, but uh, nor do I live in the past. I, I, you know, I'm interested in talking about Killers of the Flower Moon as much as anything else. But I love sure. vintage Hollywood. I, I love what, what they what we generally call the golden age of Hollywood. And that incorporates the nineteen thirties, which is kind of uh, funny in a way because in life, in real life, the nineteen thirties were uh, was a terrible decade. It's the decade of the Great Depression. Yes. <laughs> and and yet yes. at the same time that people were suffering in, in, a, in, a, in a variety of ways, they were also scrimping and saving to go to the movies, and Hollywood yeah. obliged them with a decade of fantastically good films. And uh, many people think 1939 was the pinnacle year, but I would argue for 1935. And I will. And and we will we will listen and you'll probably talk us into it. Um, for folks who don't know, those who those those unfortunate few who have not had a chance to read Starstruck, when and how did you become so captivated by this period, by vintage Hollywood in general, but the movies of the thirties in particular? For that I have to thank television. I thank uh, I'm I'm a mm. I'm a child I'm a baby boomer, uh, uh, card carrying born in December 1950, uh, grew up in, uh, in the model suburban town of Teaneck, New Jersey, uh, five miles from mm-hmm. the George Washington Bridge, easy access to, uh, to Manhattan. And um, that helped too, because in those days there were a handful of revival theaters in, in the city where I could see so many of these films and silent films and other, you know, other things that were not in general circulation. And, uh, but TV really uh, sealed the deal because in the earlier days of television, children, uh, (laughs) (laughs) New York had seven channels and they all showed old movies. They filled up oodles of time, oodles of space 
with old movies. So you didn't have to go to a channel like Turner Classic Movies, God bless them. You could turn the dial, and by the way, you had to turn the dial because there weren't remote <laughs> controls. Of course. Uh, you of could course. Turn, Get your exercise You could turn in. the dial and just stumble onto Humphrey Bogart or W.C. Fields or, or whoever. Uh, they they were, were everywhere. They were wow. inescapable. And if you started to focus, as I started to, at the age of, oh, say, 12, uh, you could... You could you you couldn't program it. You couldn't demand no such thing as movies on demand. That was not even a, a twinkle in anybody's eye at that time. But you could do as I did and force yourself to go to sleep early on a school night and set the alarm for two fifteen and wake up and see Twentieth oh Century with John Barrymore <laughs> and Carol Lombard and uh, have wow. the volume down so I didn't wake up the rest of the household. And then the next morning, he had to wake up and bleary-eyed and go to school and pretend to be paying attention. <laughs> that is dedication to the art. Well, yeah, you know, it, it doesn't sound like a big deal, but it was a big deal then. Yeah, yeah. Well, and also, I feel like from, you know, from what I've heard about this period in, in New York television, also a lot of opportunities to to really study movies because of there there was a repetition to some of it there was the million dollar movie where they would show the same movie every day for a week and if it was something you loved you you knew that movie by the end of the week they would show it multiple times a day for a week oh wow okay <laughs> if you missed any part of king kong or wish to see it again tune in at 1 p.m. 5 p.m. <laughs> 9 p.m. and 1 a.m. <laughs> Amazing. Amazing. All right, Mike, let's do some headlines. Ten thousand cheer the end of the apical flight as the Lady Lindy slides into a perfect landing with two records. The first woman to fly the Pacific and the first person to fly it solo. She receives one of the most tumultuous greetings ever accorded a flyer. January 12, 1935, Amelia Earhart flew from Hawaii to California, the first human being to make the flight solo. Bravo. Hats off. Nice work. Maybe even more important than that, though. Also in January, the Gottfried Kruger Brewing Company sold the very first canned beer in Richmond, Virginia. Bravo. Hooray. Well done. Yeah, it was an experiment. <laughs> they had a partnership with the American Can Company. They weren't sure if anybody would buy it, but it turns out. <laughs> Turns out. Turns out we were on board. Mm -hmm. In March, a young black man was caught stealing a pen knife at the S.H. Crest Five and Dime on 125th Street in Harlem. People on the street saw through the windows, saw him being manhandled by store employees, and the rumor started. By evening, the story going around was that he had been killed for shoplifting, oh. and a riot ensued. Uh, three people were killed. Around $2 million in property was destroyed, most of it white-owned. Hmm. on 125th Street. This is considered by many people to be the first modern race riot because it was more focused yeah. on property damage than people damage. Of course. Yeah, 1935 it was on. Uh, as we mentioned, the Depression had been happening for quite a while. People mm -hmm. were frustrated. Mm -hmm. Also in March, the leader of Persia, Reza Shah, asked the world to call his country Iran instead of Persia because they had been calling it that for more than a thousand years. <laughs> we didn't want to listen. No, no. We typically don't in matters of foreign policy. In April was the famous Dust Bowl when dirt clouds covered huge sections of New Mexico, Colorado, and uh, the Texas-Oklahoma panhandle. It was literally called a black blizzard. Oof. 
lots of lots of good art about that. I don't know if there's a lot of Dust Bowl movies, right? Not but there's tons of Dust Bowl songs couple, and books. And, well, and, now there's now there's Ken Burns' brilliant, yes, yes. and uh, eye-opening documentary on the Dust Bowl, yeah. which which is a must a must see. Agreed. Lawrence of Arabia is dead. Lung trouble following a motorcycle accident which rendered him unconscious for days has killed the mystery man of the 20th century. Aircraftman Shaw, to give him his adopted name, has always been a difficult man to photograph ever since his war exploits made him the uncrowned king of Arabia. In May, T.E. Lawrence got in a motorcycle crash and died, which seems pretty pedestrian considering everything that movie says he did. <laughs> True. Side note, can you use the word pedestrian for a traffic accident? Uh, you just did. Also, it made 20th Century Pictures and Fox Film Corporation merge to form 20th Century Fox. Three words that like don't naturally go together, but is right. a phrase none of us will ever forget. It still is uproarious to me that when Disney bought them, they made them change the, pic the, change the name of the company to 20th Century Films, even though we were well into the 21st century. Like, that's such a, that's <laughs> such a, such a petty thing to do, to, like, insist that they're a thing of the past. All right. In July was the first broadcast of A Voz do Brasil, a radio show that is still on the air, which seems hey. impressive until you realize that the government makes the show and every radio station in Brazil is mandated to play it every day. Uh-huh. Right. All right. Kind of like when rich kids are successful, right? <laughs> it's got a little, it's got a little, yeah. little tinge to it. Yeah. From Alaska came the terrible news of the death of two of America's most famous men. The whole world mourns Wiley Post, Atlantic flyer and the first man to fly around the world. With him was that lovable old fellow Will Rogers, film star, journalist, and king of the wisecrackers. August fifteenth, Will Rogers died in a plane crash. R.I.P. R.I.P. Great comedian, great social commentator, great writer, and as we will discuss a little later, uh, a pretty successful movie star as well. He's an example of somebody who it's hard for us to imagine how famous he was. Oh, yeah. Oh, totally. You know, yeah. because of how sort of diffuse the culture is now. Yeah. Making news then as now, millionaire sportsman and industrialist Howard Hughes unveiled his new mystery plane in Los Angeles. The racer boasted a thousand horsepower motor that outstrip any plane ever built in America. In September, all-time American rich kid Howard Hughes set the airspeed record of 352 miles per hour in the Hughes H1 Racer. Have you ever seen that plane? <laughs> no. It's amazing. It looks like if they had prop planes in Buck Rogers, <laughs> right? Because it's like it's still a prop plane yeah. still before jets. Oh, but wow. Yeah, it's a cool-looking plane. Uh -huh. uh, Europeans were wreaking havoc already. We're going to skip most of this stuff because uh, it's really depressing. Really? But the fall season of 1935 included the Nuremberg Laws that removed citizenship uh, from Jews in Germany. The Italians were running around Africa like they owned the place. And the Japanese were committing war crimes all over Asia uh, and feeling quite invincible at that it's, time. It's a bleak era around the yeah, It world. just seems like we sort of can't, like can't like skip it <laughs> yeah you gotta say yeah. something about yes, it indeed. you know but yes, in november scientists at the pasteur institute in paris discovered s sulfonilamide hey. sulfonilamide that's well what done. i'm going with they discovered that was the active ingredient in antibiotics meaning they could make versions that would be broadly available and effective science baby nice that's why uh that's why there's so many fucking people yay these days Including most of us who are talking and listening. It seems Correct. like sometimes when you talk about how there's a lot of people, people are like, yeah, there's too many people. And it's like, wait, <laughs> which too many people? Because you're one of those people. <laughs> so here, here's to antibiotics. There we go. And in December, Regina Jonas became the first woman to be ordained as a rabbi in Judaism, which would hey. not happen again until 1972. 
that's that's quite a wide gap in in that but all right i mean the first time the first gap was like five thousand years that's fair fair enough okay all right they slimmed it down we got some new stuff in 1935 monopoly the board game, not the business practice. <laughs> no, the business practice uh, had been around a long time, yes. Yeah. A British guy invented radar. Akron, Ohio gave us Alcoholics Anonymous. Uh, we got the Hoover Dam in 35, nice. which, like, you can't take a picture of the place. You just have to go <laughs> see it. Like, you can yeah. take photographs there, but yes, you yes. can't photograph. You have to go see it, yeah. Yeah. And uh, FDR signed the bill creating Social Security. All right. All right Shout out yay! to Social Security. One of the most amazing uh, stats in U.S. history is the way senior suicide fell off after uh, Social Security was introduced because people didn't feel like a burden anymore. Yeah. Yeah. Life is hard. That's why movies are so much fun. We also got some new people in 1935. Boxer Floyd Patterson, uh, a guy named Aaron Presley. You know who that is. I think he went by a different name. I believe you're right. Yes. Uh, Johnny Guitar Watson, who played an instrument, but I'm going to make you guess which one. Uh, harmonica. Future politicians, Sonny Bono, Robert Conrad, Judd Hirsch, Herb Alpert, Dudley Moore, Charles Groden, installation artists Christo and Jean-Claude. You remember the Gates in New York? Mm-hmm, I love definitely. Christo and Jean-Claude. I know definitely. a lot of people don't like them, but I absolutely <laughs> love them. Javier Aguirre, Robert Downey the Elder. Please watch the documentary Senior on Netflix. It's wonderful. Yep. The Romans would have called him the Elder, so I'm going with the Elder from now on. Okay, great. Activist Larry Kramer, Donald Sutherland, uh, singer-songwriter Lord Creator. William Friedkin was born in 35. Shout out to William Friedkin. Hurricane Billy, rest in peace. Eldridge Cleaver, Ken Kesey, Jerry Lee Lewis, Julie Andrews, Luciano Pavarotti, Peter Boyle. I don't know if those two men have ever been on a list together, but welcome to a very good year. Yeah. Uh, frequent Bergman collaborator B.B. Anderson. Woody Allen was born in 35. And finally, as he's known on this show, Meryl Streep's boyfriend, John Cazal, was born in 1935. And you yes. can thank your God and all the other ones for that. Five for five, John Cazal. Let's bang through sports real quick. The very first Heisman Trophy was awarded to Jay Bearwanger of the University of Chicago. And he never let his brothers let it down. Mm-hmm. Hank Greenberg led the Detroit Tigers to beat the Chicago Cubs in the World Series. Max Bayer beat James Braddock in Long Island City to become heavyweight champ. Nice. The very first Vuelta a España was raced in Spain and won by a guy named Gustav. <laughs> okay. Well, those two things don't really go together, but here uh-huh. they are. Triple Crown was won for only the third time by a horse named Omaha. Uh, and you know our reflections on the Triple Crown winners on this yeah. show. And finally, Babe Ruth hit the last of his 714 career home runs in a three-run outing against the Pittsburgh Pirates, a record that stood for almost 40 years. He retired the following week. That uh, is a well-earned retirement, That Mr. is a Ruth. mic drop. That is get out while the getting is good, Babe Ruth. <laughs> well done. I hit the most home runs ever. Have Bye. a nice life. Yeah. That's headlines. All right. Thank you, Mike. Leonard Malton, you ready to do a top five? I'm ready. Okay, so we uh, we decided that we were going to do, this is, it's not exactly random, but it's not ranked. It's it's sort of a, a thematic. No, it's not ranked. We would never. It is not ranked. But it's. It's, it, it's, this is at a time when there were seven major studios in Hollywood. Mm-hmm. And they were each putting out something like 40 to 50 films a year. My God. Feature-length films. Yeah. Not counting short subjects, newsreels, cartoons. Yeah. And, you know, coming attractions, trailers, whatever else. 
feature-length films. And when your local movie theater, not the movie palace downtown in the big cities, right. but your local movie theater might change the bill as often as three times a week. My God. <laughs> you look at old uh, handout flyers, uh, uh, programs, it'll say MUN2, M-O-N-T-U-E. There'd be one double feature, mm-hmm. you know, maybe Wednesday, th- Wednesday, <laughs> <laughs> Fry Sat, yeah, or Fry Sun, yeah. Uh, there was there was an audience waiting for, for these films. Beautiful. It's it, it's it's staggering, actually. Let's start with the sleeper. We decided we we'd go with the one that that folks might yes. not know, might not have heard of. That honestly, Mike nor I had not seen before this week. So, what is the first film on your top five, Leonard Maltin? It's Ruggles of Red Gap. Well, Ruggles. And to think I sent you out to take care of him. I'm terribly sorry, madam. Perhaps I should have inquired of his lordship about your habit. Come on, you better go to bed. Yeah, yeah. Oh. 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 It was the third filming of a very famous a play or a novel, I'm not sure which, by an author named Harry Leon Wilson, mm-hmm. who was uh, uh, a uh, very prominent, well-known uh, American author. He had several properties that were made and remade and re-remade, <laughs> and this is one of them. And this version, after two silent film versions, stars uh, uh, the great Charles Lawton, yeah. Charlie Ruggles, which is a funny coincidence. It is. It's, it's very confusing. to do with the film. <laughs> right. And Mary Boland, yeah. uh, a, a Broadway actress who came to Hollywood and played a uh, uh, showy, mm-hmm. loud, mm-hmm. garish women. <laughs> yes. Uh, often with Charlie Ruggles. <laughs> yeah. They, they, they were kind of an informal team. Yeah. Uh, and uh, Roland Young. And Lila Hyams. Mm. I think those are the principles of the, of the cast. The, the the gist of the story is that two nouveau riche uh, <laughs> people from the from the heart of America, yes, <laughs> uh, have gone to gone overseas on a, on a on a splurgy vacation and won a lot of money in uh, playing cards mm-hmm. and. They won a butler. They did. <laughs> named Ruggles. Yes. And they they transport this uh, this this uh, man who was born into this uh, a life of service, as they used to say, mm-hmm. on upstairs, downstairs, mm-hmm. and now on the Gilded Age. And they bring him to their wide open, wild west town of Red Gap. Yeah. And he becomes uh, acclimated. Slowly but surely, mm-hmm. and they become acclimated to him. Yeah, it, it doesn't sound terribly exciting, I, I admit, and certainly not in my telling just now. <laughs> uh, I, I haven't done it justice, and, but it was directed by the great Leo McCary, yes, whose credits range from some of Laurel and Hardy's greatest silent comedy shorts to Duck Soup. Yep to uh, The Awful Truth, one of the great screwball comedies, to Love Affair, 1939, one of the great romantic films of all time. Yeah. Uh, 
he uh, he he was beloved by the people who knew him and worked with him. And I'm sorry for our dogs. <laughs> That's okay. Making a racket in the background. That's okay. There. And the first time I saw this was with an audience. Oh wow! How lucky me. Yeah. It was at the Museum of Modern Art oh, in wow. New York at a matinee, and the audience just went wild. Uh, by the last scene, you almost couldn't hear the dialogue because they were cheering so loudly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's a rousing film. It is. You know, what What do you think it is that made, what quality did Leo McCary have that made him such a gifted director of comedies that, you know, that so many of his films have stood the test of time so well? Well, he never lost the common touch. Mm. Uh, I would start there. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, he wasn't born to wealth or didn't live a life of privilege. Right. And I think he, uh, he, he related to people the way Frank Capra did. Yeah. Uh, uh, you know, the, the every man, the every woman. And, and that was probably his ace in the hole. Plus he communicated so well to his actors. They, his actors just adored him. Mm. And, uh, uh, and, so I so I've read and so I'm told, and uh, he got them to be. He 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 gave them their their gave them their best. Yeah, he gave them their best opportunities. Showed them at their best. Uh, he he was uh, he had a he had a touch of genius in him. Yeah, and and I. I, there's there is something that that is his best about what Charles Lawton is doing in this in this picture. Mm-hmm. What do you mm-hmm. what do you think made him such a singular presence, and how is he so lovable in this movie? He in this you know he had a very busy year. He was mm-hmm. uh, Captain Bly in Mutiny on the Bounty, right? A 180 degrees role. from this. Complete, yeah. Couldn't exactly. be more different. Yeah. Couldn't be more different. Uh, uh, and the same year, he was uh, Javert yeah. in <laughs> Les Miserables with Frederick March. Yeah. Was, you know. uh, and the same year, he was the original Mr. Micawber in David Copperfield. Right. But he felt he wasn't getting the character. Wow. And uh, and he quit. Wow, leaving uh, vacancy filled beautifully. Beautifully, yeah, yeah. So he had quite a year. Yes, he did. Uh, But but what he seemed to understand, or what McCary helped him understand, is that in the role of Ruggles, the less he did, the better. Mm. It's a it's a. You wouldn't think to use the word minimalist, yeah. in Charles Lawton, yeah, in the same sentence, <laughs> sure. But it, it really, it really is underplayed. It is, yeah, and beautifully underplayed. Agreed. Ag- agreed. This movie, like this movie, made me proud to be an American, which is something <laughs> that, like, I mean, you know, we we talk about we love the people, you know, all the time. But this movie, like, <clears throat> and the Americans are, you know, it starts off these like this gauche hillbilly who just seems so ridiculous but yep. obviously as the story gets told yep. he is 
he's the character. He's the one who's human. He's the one who's warm. He's the one who's friendly. He's the one who's honest. He's the one who seems more fun, you know, and I didn't even hate his checkered suits when he busted them back out. (laughs) Like it just sort of the idea that, that, and, and obviously that's what it's intended. That's what it's intended to give you because that's the direction that Ruggles goes. Yeah. You know, as well, he finds that warmness in the Americans and in the sort of American spirit at the same time. Man, I did not see that coming. Yeah. What a great movie. Yeah. I'm so glad you felt that way. I, I was hoping that the two of you would respond to it. Yeah. And and it's not easy to respond to a film like this seeing it by yourself. Right. Uh, mm. uh, you know, but as I say, I was uh, I, I was blessed to have the opportunity to be introduced with a lively and yeah. enthusiastic audience. Oh, that's great. That's great. All right. Well, the, again, that's sort of the sleeper of the bunch. So uh, so seek it out, gang, if you can. Mr. Malton, what is the next film then on your top five for 1935? It would be A Night at the Opera. Yay! I've been sitting right here since seven o'clock. Yes, with your back to me. When I invite a woman to dinner, I expect her to look at my face. That's the price she has to pay. You check, sir. $9.40? This is an outrage. If I were you, I wouldn't pay it. Starring the Marx Brothers, the three Marx Brothers. Yes. This is the first film in which Zeppo did not appear. Yes. And they used to be billed as the four Marx Brothers, in fact. Uh, though no one could, could, could identify what Zeppo brought to the act. <laughs> exactly. He was considerably younger than his siblings. Yes. Uh, and he was a fill-in. And... Uh, there are people who will tell you that in real life he was the funniest he was he was the funniest yeah and that uh one night when they were still touring in vaudeville groucho fell ill and zeppo filled in for him on stage with the grease paint mustache and and eyebrows and uh and uh, killed it yeah (laughs) but uh but he he was tired of being just sort of an afterthought in the movies that they made at paramount Right. And uh, he went into the uh, talent agency business and prospered there. Yes, he did. So this was the first time we had the trio, Groucho, Harpo, Chico, and A Night of the Opera. And it was the brainchild of the MGM producer, Irving Thalberg. The boy genius. That's right. the, the, The boy genius that they should try it out on stage. They should take... Uh, the, the screenplay and compress it a little bit and take it out and play it before audiences and see what worked and what mm-hmm. didn't work and what routines, what lines got the best response. And uh, now Marx Brothers purists will disagree with me uh, because they, they resent the intrusion of a, a romantic subplot right. involving <laughs> Alan Jones and Kitty Carlisle right. and, and the songs that, that they perform. But I think this is uh, everything Thalberg intended it to be. Mm-hmm. It integrates those songs and those romantic scenes better than any other movie mm-hmm. I can think of. Mm-hmm. And, and it wasn't easily copied. Yeah. People tried to do that all the time. But this time they succeeded. Yeah. Because and they're just so funny. Yeah. yeah. They are the, the, the set pieces and routines and dialogue. Hilarious. Yeah. Hilarious. So in general, this is this is your favorite single Marx Brothers movie. This is this is yes, your number is. one. Yes, it is. Generally speaking, 
do you prefer, because this is a hinge point for a lot of us Marxists, do you prefer the <laughs> MGM era or do you prefer, you know, where and those films are a little more sleek and a little more well-produced, or do you prefer in general the Paramount, the sort of messy uh, anarchy of the Paramount era? I prefer the Paramount films mm -hmm. uh, with this one exception. Right. And A Day at the Races, which followed this and which also... They, they, they road tested mm -hmm. before audiences. A Day at the Races is pretty darn good. It is. And, and has great stuff in it. Yes. But it's not quite as good a movie. Yep. Agreed. Agreed. All right. Uh, well, I'm, I'm, when you said 1935, I was hoping that this film would be on it because I am a huge Marx Brothers enthusiast. I wore my Flywheel Shyster and Flywheel t-shirt for right. you this evening. Right. Thank you. Uh, what then is the number three movie on your top five of 1935? Top Hat. Heaven. I'm in heaven. And my heart beats so that I can hardly speak. And I seem to find the happiness I see when we're out together dancing cheek to cheek. Top hat because uh, Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers uh, were and remain uh, the, the 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 golden figures of 1930s Hollywood. Uh, but that's not, strictly speaking, that's not true. They're timeless. They're ageless. Uh, watching them dance singly or, or together is one of the great joys of life. It's, uh, it, it's, 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 it fills you up. It, it fills you up, uh, with, with such a, uh, tangible happiness feeling of that life can be this beautiful life can be uh dreamlike in the best in the best sense of that word uh they are they are perfection they're perfection uh and, and it's just great fun great fun to watch and th this is the film where it all coalesced they they made their debut as supporting players in 1933 and flying down to rio where they introduced a silly song called the karaoke, but but they obviously had something going uh, uh, as a duo. Ginger Rogers had made her name, Fred Astaire had made his name in, on Broadway and in the West End of London, but was not yet a, a film personality. And uh, I forget who said it first. It's been repeated many times that. Uh, uh, she gave him sex and he gave her class. Beautiful. That's uh, a crude way to put it, really, but uh, but it's not untrue. Right. And and uh, and that was that was given voice first in the 1934 film they made, uh, The Gay Divorcee, mm -hmm. uh, uh, which was uh, which is also a wonderful film that introduced the template for the rest of the movies they made together, uh, and which. Uh, writers like Dwight Taylor and the other screenwriters followed very closely with supporting actors like Edward Everett Horton and uh, Eric Bloor. And uh, they, they, Eric Rhodes uh, 
and Helen Broderick. Mm -hmm. Wonderful, wonderful people. If you don't know their names, you should get to know them. Yeah. Uh, they, they supported the stars, stole a lot of scenes, and, uh, and, and made people laugh. This is one of the ones that I had not yet seen. And what, what I thought was so delightful about it and what I, what I wasn't quite expecting was that it, it has this wonderfully intricate uh, screwball comedy mistaken identity plot happening in it. That it is, right. it is sort of, it, it, it works without the dance sequences. It would just be a really good screwball comedy, which is not yes. always something that's the case with their movies. Now, why would you ever take out the dance sequences? Obviously, but the fact that it is this, you know, this wonderful sort of comedy of manners and then has all of that marvelous dancing on top of that is sort of astonishing. It is. Plus uh, the songs were written by Irving Berlin. Yeah, that helps. <laughs> and, that helps. Uh, uh, that, that doesn't hurt. I mean, cheek to cheek. Isn't this a lovely day to be caught in the rain? Uh, top hat, white tie, and tails. Yeah, and uh, and the silly song, the piccolino, which is uh, uh, sort of an answer to the uh, karaoke, uh, <laughs> a tongue-in-cheek uh, answer to the karaoke. Delightful. Uh, it's uh, Irving Berlin. Uh, someone asked Jerome Kern uh, what place Irving Berlin had in American music. He said Irving Berlin has no place in American music. Irving Berlin is American music. Nice. Yeah. And this this, <laughs> yeah. this score makes a good case for that. This was a fun movie where I was reminded that watching their movies is sort of like watching the Olympics, where <laughs> you you feel like you could maybe go do that by the end of by after watching them do it for because an hour and a half. Because they do it with such ease. Like you, yeah. Because they make it look so easy, even though you know that there's no way that you could ever <laughs> yeah. go do that. It's yeah. like watching the Olympics. It makes yeah. you feel like you can. There's this yeah. weird like aspirational element to it mm. that is sort of a subtext, but is deep. You're right. You're quite right. This is, they made a total of 10 films together. I, I am curious because you, you mentioned that night at the opera was your favorite Marx brothers. A later film you mentioned was your favorite by, by uh, the director of, of that picture. You did not say this is your favorite uh, Astaire and Rogers. So I'm curious to know which one is. Well, Swing Time. Yeah, I had uh, a feeling. <laughs> directed by George Stevens. Uh, almost all their films were directed by Mark Sandridge, mm -hmm. who had just graduated from making two real comedies at RKO Radio Pictures mm -hmm. and, uh, uh, and enjoyed a, a great success until he was uh, cut down in the 1940s. Uh, he, I forget if it was a heart condition mm. or something, but he died quite young. Mm. And uh, it was a great loss uh, for us <laughs> in the audience yeah. uh, and for, for all of his colleagues and friends. Swing Time has always been my favorite, but lately I'm, I, I've watched Top Hat again mm. and it kind of creeps in mm. and says, well, <laughs> this is sort of the definitive yeah. Fred and Ginger movie. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's a beautiful, beautiful picture. All right, Mr. Melton, moving on. What is the fourth movie on your top five of nineteen thirty-five? Well, we're going to we're going to here. Let me put it in a context. Okay. Uh, at the beginning of the nineteen thirty-seven version of A Star Is Born, uh, Janet Gaynor as the uh, wide-eyed girl from the sticks who's just come to uh, to movie land is checking into a rooming house 
where, where the manager is played by the great Edgar Kennedy. Uh-huh. Uh, the master uh, of the slow and, burn. Uh, that's right. She's holding the want ad in her in her hand, and, he's, and she says, is this place really close to all the studios? And he says, all except Gaumont British. <laughs> and it's... It, it's that's a laugh that only comes from film buffs. Yes. Uh, <laughs> but that was the name of the uh, most prominent producer of British movies, which were starting to make their way into American theaters. And uh, one of the films that uh, helped open that, uh, that door was Alfred Hitchcock's The 39 Steps. <laughs> If I demand that you allow me to telephone to the High Commissioner for Canada in London. You better do that from London. You'll be there soon enough. I have the honor in presenting to you one of the most remarkable men in the world, Mr. Memory. What are the 39 steps? Which is my favorite Alfred Hitchcock movie. Now, why wow. is that? that? That is hard. <laughs> hard to pick one. I, I love Hitchcock. Yeah. I love Hitchcock. Uh, there's, you know, I could go on and on and on about Alfred Hitchcock. But this, to me, is kind of the definitive Hitchcock movie. It's got uh, mistaken identity. Yep. It's got, you know, a, a, a man on the run. Innocent it's man got, wrongly uh, accused. Right. Right, it's got the sexual tension. Yep, it's got it's got a beautiful blonde. Mm-hmm. Uh, what more could you ask? <laughs> I am. There are, there are few there are few few blonde actresses quite as beautiful as Madeline Carroll. Yeah, yeah, no kidding. And uh, and and Robert Donat is a perfect hero. He is. He is. He has a he has a really distinctive presence, and and it's it's not quite what Cary Grant is doing in the later movies, but it's not completely divorced from that either i think no no he he's he's credible yeah yeah he, he's credible as, as this character yeah so okay and it's and it's very well plotted and uh it just says once you see it you the components of it stay with you mm-hmm. you know the the, the i don't want to give away anything right for, for those who haven't seen it <laughs> but I like I like a lot of Hitchcock's British uh, uh, films of the 30s, but this is the very best. So here, that then is my question. So similar to the sort of the split among Marx fans, uh, mm-hmm. there's 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 a similar schism among Hitchcock fans. There are some who think he he did his best work early on in England in films like this and The Lady Vanishes, The Original Man Who Knew Too Much, and then people who prefer the films after he went to Hollywood in 1940. Where do you fall mm-hmm. on that uh, spectrum? Um, I like them both. Yeah. I like them both. I don't see why we have to go either or. Yeah. I think <laughs> you, you need, there's no need to do that. Yeah. It's like when people want to make a an artificial argument about who's better Keaton or Chaplin. Right. Uh, what's the point of that? You know, let's just celebrate them both. Amen. Amen. Beautifully said. All right. Well, let's, uh, we have come to the conclusion. We have one more movie in the top five and, uh, an appropriate one for the, the, the season of the year in which we're, we're talking. Leonard Malton, what is the final film on your top five for 35? It is the bride of Frankenstein. Yes, sir. Ah. Uh.
She's alive. Alive! Directed by the great James Whale, who also made the original Frankenstein Mm -hmm. four years earlier. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, bringing back Boris Karloff in the role of the monster, mm-hmm. introducing Elsa Lanchester as his Amazing. mate. Amazing. Uh, and uh, and introducing uh, O.P. Heggie, O period, P period Heggie, yeah. as the uh, the blind man in the forest. Yes. And, and uh, Ernest Desiker, of course, as Dr. Pretorius. Incredible. And if you've seen James Wales' The Old Dark House, that's where he would have been introduced to Ernest Thesiger. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, once seen, never forgotten. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, have a potato. <laughs> uh, it's just a marvelous film. It, that it exists at all is kind of a minor miracle. Mm. Who would have dreamt that they would make a sequel to a, a one-of-a-kind horror film, uh, which they didn't call horror films quite yet but mary shelley's you know frankenstein was a unique story and uh it was very daring of uh carl lemley and his son who were running universal pictures to to make that film there'd been nothing quite like it some lon cheney films of the 20s approached uh that kind of film but frankenstein was a real breakthrough a game changer you might say and to then revisit it with The Bride of Frankenstein, adding all of those actors and components, plus a music score. Frankenstein lacks a music score. Yeah. But by 1935, uh, thanks to Max Steiner, uh, music scores were in, and movies were never the same from that day forward. This one has a brilliant and haunting score by Franz Waxman. And uh, uh, if you've never heard the main theme, uh, once you hear it and identify it, yeah. you won't forget it. Yeah, yeah. You know, I, I feel like, and correct me if I'm wrong on this, but I feel like in recent years, helped, I think, at least a little bit by by Gods and Monsters back in 98, that James Whale really has become, you know, a, a beloved, recognizable name director among classic movie fans. And so I'm curious to hear what what you think it is that makes his work so notable, so memorable. What's made these films of his, Frankenstein, Bride of Frankenstein, The Old Dark House that you mentioned, you know, withstand the test of so many years? Well, he, he for one thing, they're witty. Yes. Mm. Yes. You know, they're they're not just gothic horror exercises. Yeah. You know, he he's not uh, following a manual. Yeah. Of. Uh, you know how to make a gothic story yeah uh he he's he's mapping his own route toward toward whatever goals you mm-hmm. know they may have set for him mm-hmm. uh and and wit is a crucial ingredient yeah crucial yeah it's it's uh you don't sense it so much in the original frankenstein right uh but here it it it, it it's fully blossomed and uh and it's glorious. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it feels like the conventional wisdom has become that this is a rare case where the the sequel matches or even surpasses the original. Do you where do you where do you fall on on that argument? Well, I it's it's tricky. Yeah. Because I don't want to seem to be ungrateful for Frankenstein. Right. <laughs> because it 
it's it's the foundational text, isn't mm-hmm. it? Mm-hmm. You know, everything flows from there. Yeah. But in many ways, I think the sequel is better. Yeah. It's slicker, certainly. Yeah. Uh, the, the the original was made in 1931, uh, when Hollywood was still getting used to sound. Yes. And uh, dealing with sound and the cumbersome nature of uh, shooting with sound equipment. Uh, and by 1935, they got all the kinks ironed out, and now they can really go to town. Yeah. And they can move, they can move the camera in ways they only dreamt of 10 years earlier. Uh, it's, uh, it's, 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 it's a marvelous piece of entertainment. And, and it's something that uh, you can show to kids. You can show it to your kids w- without, without fear of uh, frightening them too much mm-hmm. or, uh, you know, or, in fact, it'll help shape their sense of humor. <laughs> <laughs> Beautiful. Beautiful. All right. Well, Mr. Moulton, thank you so much for that excellent top five. All all movies worth seeking out and, and rewatching. But uh, like we said, especially uh, here in the next few days, that last one, which really is one of, one of the great uh, Halloween pictures. Let's find out now what films were winning trophies and making money in 1935. Here's Mike with awards and box office. Sell out with me, oh yeah, sell out with me tonight. The record companies only give me the money. This Oscar list is short. It is. It is. They didn't have such a long show back then. They huh? did not. <laughs> Best picture went to Mutiny on the Bounty. The aforementioned Mutiny of the Bounty with Charles Lawton. Uh, Mr. Moulton, where do you land on that one? That's a great movie. There you go. Clark Gable, Charles Lawton, French Oxone. Uh a great story, uh, vividly told. Yeah. yeah. Oh, I guess this is why the list is so short, because all the awards went to this next movie. Best director to John Ford, best actor to Victor McLaughlin? McLaughlin, yes. McLaughlin. Best screenplay adapta- adaptation to Dudley Nichols for The Informer. Ooh, this is a good picture. Boy, I like The yes, Informer. Yes, it sure is. Oh. Some Ford... Some Ford uh, uh, aficionados uh, think it's too self-consciously artsy. Mm-hmm. Hard. Dis- uh, I respectfully disagree. Hard disagree. <laughs> yes, I disrespectfully disagree. They're wrong. <laughs> beautifully, beautifully shot. Yeah. Beautifully designed. Great score by Max Steiner. Yeah. Great cinematography by uh, uh, Joseph August. Uh, and a great performance in Victor McLaughlin. He breaks your heart in that movie. It is really a mm-hmm. wrenching piece of work. Yeah. yeah. And it was a remake. Ooh. It had been done once before 1929. Oh, wow. Early talking. Oh, wow. Okay. That's a that's a quick turn on the remake, but I'm glad they made it. Yeah. Best Actress went to Betty Davis for Dangerous. Now, I have not seen this one. Have, have, have you seen Dangerous? It's a minor film. Okay. This is a makeup. This was a makeup Oscar. Aha! Our old friend, the makeup Oscar. We talked about him a lot. She gave a, a, a such a jaw-dropping performance in of Human Bondage in mm-hmm. 1934, mm-hmm. opposite Leslie Howard. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you've even seen an excerpt, you you know what I'm saying. She just blistering performance. But they gave everything to it happened one night that year, right? Including 
best actress to Claudia Colbert, who I love. Sure. Uh, uh, no complaint there. Sure. But they they gave a makeup Oscar to Betty Davis, her first, uh, for a very minor film called Dangerous, mm-hmm. which has no other particular distinction. <laughs> there we have it. There we have Except it. Except it's, it's a decent Warner Brothers, sure. you know, melodrama. Sure. One other significant award winner, uh, which is not surprisingly the same one mm-hmm. that swooped up all the awards before, The Informer also won the very first New York Film Critics Circle Award for Best Film. I just wanted us to mention that as a New York Film Critics Circle member, that I'm very proud that that was our, our inaugural winner for Best <laughs> Film. Uh, but in the box office, yep. number 10, The Littlest Rebel. That could only star one person. That's that, a Shirley, Shirley Temple. Temple. That's a Shirley, Shirley Temple. Temple. Right. Yeah. The box office. In fact, when Fox and 20th Century merged, they had the three top box office stars, Will Rogers, Shirley Temple, and Janet Gaynor. Oh, wow. And then, and Will Rogers had three films in release that year. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, well, 1935, the, the year he died. We we and we have a couple of them, I think, coming up on this very list. Mike. Number nine, uh-huh. Will Rogers in in old Kentucky. Aha. Mm-hmm. OK. Is uh and, and where does this one? Is this uh, I, I, I'm Will Rogers is a bit of a blind spot for me. So uh, what are your thoughts on in old Kentucky? Well, I love Will Rogers. He 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 I find him very endearing and very likable. Mm hmm. And even his, uh, even the thinnest of his star <laughs> vehicles are, are pleasing to my taste. Yeah. Because I just enjoy watching him. Yeah. And all his co-stars and directors all said the same thing. He, he didn't follow the script. He, <laughs> he, he did. He stuck as close to it as he could. Sure. But he wasn't going to kill himself memorizing dialogue. He could invent dialogue. Much better, just as good or much better. Right. Uh, so I, I like in old Kentucky. I like Doubting Thomas. I like Steamboat Round the Bend, which was released posthumously. I like the, the films he made for, for, with John Ford, like Steamboat. And uh, uh, they're not easily revived because uh, they take the same rose-colored view of the old South that Gone with the Wind. Sure. Does. Sure. Uh-huh. And, and uh, Hattie McDaniel, in fact, is in several of the films, uh, like Judge Priest, in which she's quite wonderful. And uh, so is Step and Fetch It. Mm. So tricky. You're not going to not going to see these uh, uh, right too often. Right. Number eight, another Stair and Rogers vehicle, Roberta. Now this is one of the ones I haven't seen. It was out of circulation for decades. Oh, okay. Because M- MGM bought the remake rights. Oh God. Okay. And, and and made it as uh, lovely to look at, which I just saw some of on TCM last week mm-hmm. with uh, uh, Jane Powell and uh, no, yeah, not Jane Powell, Catherine Grayson mm-hmm. and Howard Keel and Red Skelton and Margin Gower Champion. Uh, and uh, it's, a, it's, it's a nice film, but that song, that Jerome Kern song, uh, lovely to look at, came from the, the Broadway show called Roberta. Mm. But they kept it, they, they bought the negative. They bought the rights. They wow. kept it out of circulation. It wasn't ever shown on television. Wow. Uh, until recent times. And and uh, how do you feel about this one? Is it a good one? Yeah, it is. Yeah. It is. It's not as good as... Th- there's there's a, 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 a 
A couple and a B couple. Mm. Fred and Ginger are the A couple. Mm -hmm. And the B couple are Randolph Scott and Irene Dunn. Oh my goodness. Okay. And, 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 and they're both good. Irene Dunn is wonderful. Yeah. And, uh, uh, no, you know, no problem there, but, uh, it dilutes the uh, Fred and Ginger material. Gotcha. Number seven, Cecil B. DeMille finally found a subject big enough for his cameras, the Crusades. <laughs> Very good. Number six, uh, the aforementioned Will Rogers, Steamboat Round the Bend. Good. Mm-hmm. Yep. Ford. Number five, a W.C. Fields movie. <laughs> Who he swapped out. Like, how long do you think he had to learn his lines before he had to jump into this, right? W.C. Fields and David Copperfield. Yeah. Yeah. I love that movie. I do, too. I love that movie. I, I That movie got me to read Dickens. Wow. Hmm. Wow. I loved the movie so much when I was 13 or 14 years old and I saw it. I said, I got, I got to read this Charles Dickens to see what he's all about. And I, be, and I became a Dickens fan. I love that. That's because of that movie. That's the best thing that can come of a, of a film adaptation of, of a great novel. That's wonderful. And it's so perfectly cast. Oh, yeah. My gosh. Yeah. Every character. Yeah. Perfectly cast. Yeah. Agree. In fourth, Jack Benny in Broadway Melody of 1936. A... a uh, Wasn't that supposed to come out next year? <laughs> that's well, I'm so that was just for for one year ahead. Right, right. Like cars. It's like the cars exactly. <laughs> uh, number three, Clark Gable and Gene Harlow in China Seas. Have you seen China Seas? I have not in a long, long time. That it's an MGM star vehicle. Yep. Built for these particular personalities. Yep. yep. Both of whom, you know, very appealing, and uh, and it's a likable film, but yep. not a memorable film. Gotcha. See, that's a that's a new standard on the show. Likable, not memorable. I like it. I think we're gonna keep that. Yeah, we'll back. Uh, number about. two was Top Hat. Yay! Uh, Big which hit. Has been praised deeply on this show already obviously yep. america agreed yeah and number one was mutiny on the bounty people love a big giant big giant movie <laughs> people love a big movie mutiny on the indeed. bounty number one they do indeed all right mike thank you for the awards and box office mr malton are you ready to do a lightning round sure All right. And then can I pluck some other titles that I like from that year? Absolutely. Well, hopefully some of them may may, may be in this lightning round. Uh, All right. If Go ahead. If we're lucky. All right. Uh, Mike's going to put five minutes on the clock. Uh, I'll give you a title. Say if you have something to say. Pass if you do not. And here right. we go. The great Greta Garbo as Anna Karenina. I think it's a beautiful, beautifully made movie. And uh, she and Frederick March and Freddie Bartholomew and Basil Rathbone all great in it. Carl Freund's Mad Love. Love it. Yeah. Love it, love it, love it. Peter Laurie's uh, uh, Hollywood debut, American debut, and uh, based on a famous story called The Hands of Orlock. Nice. The uh, a Gene Autry serial titled The Phantom yes. Empire was released the in Phantom 1935. Empire. Yes. <laughs> Where he goes underground to the kingdom of Murania, but still has to get, still has to get back to, to to the ranch for his daily radio show <laughs> with his western western band. That is a that is a mashup you don't hear about very often. Um, no, that's 
produced by the great mascot picture company. Very good. Uh, William Wyler directed. Preston Sturges wrote. It was called The Good Fairy. Delightful film. Delightful film starring Margaret Sullivan. Ah, Gary Cooper in The Lives of a Bengal Lancer. An old favorite of mine, mm. which is now politically incorrect because uh, it, it supports colonialism. Ah, yes. Uh, and imperialism. Well, and we can't have that. We just simply can't have that. But if you can compartmentalize <laughs> and, and pretend that it has nothing to do with reality, yes, it's a very entertaining movie. Edward G. Robinson in The Whole Town's Talking. Edward G. Robinson and Edward G. Robinson oh, in The Whole Town's Talking. Nice. He plays a dual role. And he's really good. And John Ford directed it. And Joe August photographed it. And they, it, it, for 1935, it, it, or for any time, some of the tricks that they pull off mm. are quite amazing. You, you, you'd you swear that there were two people in the scene instead of one. Amazing. Very, very, very enjoyable film with Gene Arthur as the leading lady. Oh, well, sold. Uh, Jeanette McDonald and Nelson Eddy and Naughty Marietta. Their first teaming mm -hmm. uh, uh, of many, the, based on a famous operetta. Uh, this is where Nelson Eddy gets to sing Stout-Hearted Men. Uh, <laughs> and and uh, uh, it's a very entertaining movie. Nice. It's not corny. It's, it's, it is what it is. It's an operetta. There we go. Uh, Busby Berkeley's Gold Diggers of 1935. Which features the stupendous lullaby of Broadway number. Uh, which goes on for 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 like a whole reel, <laughs> yeah. I think, of film. Yeah, and uh, and which uh, is quite spectacular, and and spectacular in a career of a guy who made nothing but spectacular right. dance numbers. <laughs> right. Two from Claudette Colbert in '35. We had the Gilded Lily and Private yep. Worlds. Gilded Lily is a lovely romantic comedy. Uh, and Private Worlds is a very early attempt by Hollywood to deal with mental illness Ooh, wow. in a serious in a serious way. And it's, it's quite good. Uh, one of my favorite Carol Lombard pictures, Hands Across the Table. Yeah, she plays a manicurist. Yeah, great, great title. What I love about a lot of these films is that they commissioned songwriters to compose titled songs yeah sometimes they were actually used in the movie sometimes the sheet music i'm a sheet music collector sometimes the sheet music will say inspired Ooh. by the film hands across the tape <laughs> um al jolson in go into your dance starring his him and his then wife ruby keeler mm -hmm. and it has one of my favorite uh, songs of the 30s uh about a quarter to nine a wonderful wonderful song Barbara Stanwyck as Annie Oakley. And she's wonderful as Annie Oakley. This, this was an early credit for George Stevens, who had just uh, graduated from directing two real comedies. Oh, wow. Uh, and uh, uh, this is the same year he made Alice Adams at RKO. He was a big fish. And RKO was sort of a mini major. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, uh, he had two... Wonderful films that year, Alice Adams and Annie Oakley. Nice. And finally, Errol Flynn as Captain Blood. The birth of a career, the mm. birth of a star, 
he was spotted in a, in a, in a film that was made uh, in New Zealand, brought to England, mm-hmm. given a tryout there, shipped to Burbank, <laughs> <laughs> and then cast in Captain Blood, his first Hollywood film, opposite another brand newcomer named Olivia de Havilland. Imagine that. Mm. Not only did it make him a star and identify him with the swashbuckler uh, genre, but it made them a team. They made 10 movies together. Wow. Wow. Amazing. And he, and he gets to duel on the beach with uh, Basil Rathbone. I mean, <laughs> how do you top that? Um, yeah, not easy. <laughs> All right. That is our lightning round. Uh, Mr. Malton, you did predictably quite well on that. Were, you, were there any of the other uh, honorable mentions you wanted to, to throw in before we move on? Uh, w- w- you, you did cover almost everything in this list, except two with W.C. Field. Ah. Mississippi. Yes. Uh, uh, which, which Bing Crosby. Which also yeah. stars Bing Crosby. Yeah. And the Men on the Flying Trapeze, which is a, a, a lovely uh, Fields uh, vehicle, and also uh, Ah Wilderness. Aha! A a, a a I think underrated MGM film adaptation of the Eugene O'Neill play, and uh, awfully good with Lionel Barrymore, Wallace Beery, and young Mickey Rooney. Very good. All right, folks, you have a lot of catch-up viewing to do for 1935. Uh, Real quick, we're going to throw it to our friend W. Axel Foley for a quick PSA. Head on over to your favorite podcasting app. Give us a star, a rate, a review. Give us a written review and tell us that you love us because that's what lets people know that we're here. Your career has has spanned you know, several different sort of eras, styles, however you want to talk about it, but also different critics and different eras of criticism. And I'm curious to hear what you think about, you know, what is the sort of state of film criticism now and and how is it different from 1980 or 1990? I don't know how easy how easily I can um, codify that in, in the most recent years, 80s and 90s. I, I I I just have to laugh when I hear about '80s nostalgia, <laughs> or, or or '90s uh, something or other. Uh, having lived through it, I can tell you it wasn't so hot. Yeah. But that aside, <laughs> um, well, the the biggest difference is people paid attention to film critics back then, way back when. Hmm. Uh, when I was growing up, uh, I grew up in the midst of the uh, Pauline Kael, Andrew Saris uh, era mm-hmm. when they were throwing darts at each other and uh, and people were, were, were listening. People were uh, not only attentive, but eager, eager to hear what they had to say and, uh, and debate what they had to say. Uh, and then in the 80s, uh, Roger Ebert and Gene Siskel uh, became nationally known. They are already well known in their hometown of Chicago because of their their newspaper work and their local television work. But then their show was picked up by first by PBS. And then uh, uh, the Walt Disney Company wanted to go into the TV syndication business. So they bought the show and gave employment to two other critics who then right. had to fill in for them on PBS. Right who then went to another syndicator, 
giving employment opportunities to two more critics. <laughs> right. And uh, that's the most employment I've ever heard in association with the, with the job description. Uh, but it, but it, it meant that, that people were uh, aware that there was such a thing as, though these are not, this is not serious criticism. This is shorthand criticism, of course. And, uh, but no, no less valid for that. And uh, people sometimes uh, throw bricks at Rotten Tomatoes saying, oh, it's just a number. Well, no, the number has meaning. And if you want to know more about anyone's opinion on the film, you can click and get my review or Robert, RogerEbert.com's review or uh, any number of others. Just as uh, Gene and Roger got famous for the thumbs up, thumbs down. Uh, but now online, I read Roger Ebert's old reviews with, with some regularity, and he's, he's mm -hmm. a brilliant writer. Yeah, uh, which I didn't know at the time because I I'd never read him. Uh, he wasn't yeah. carried in my New Jersey newspaper, and he wasn't carried in an LA paper. So when I moved out here, so I I got to know him retroactively. That makes sense. That makes sense. Anyway, today today everybody is their own film critic. Right. <laughs> they, Everybody with a you know with with an iPhone uh, or a mobile device is self-appointed and self-anointed. <laughs> Do you think incisive, thoughtful, and even well-written criticism still occasionally breaks through that? that oh sure, to the to the top of that. Oh sure. Uh, here in here in L.A., we have Justin Chang. Oh yeah, at the Los Angeles Times, who who was who was. Uh, I happen to like enormously as a person, but he's a br brilliant writer. Uh, and, and I disagree with him often, but he's sure. a brilliant writer. Uh, uh, we we still have Todd McCarthy now working for Deadline, Deadline Hollywood, uh, another incredibly smart, incisive uh, critic uh, who's worked for the trade papers uh, most of his life, Daily Variety and then The Hollywood Reporter. So the average per person didn't really know his name. He was not writing for the consumer press, but uh, it was their loss. Uh, but you, again, you can go to Movie Review Query Engine and look up a lot of his great reviews. And The New Yorker has Anthony Lane, who I much admire, greatly admire. You know, there, there, there are numerous examples of, of good, solid, good writing and good criticism. Gotcha. I don't read it. I don't read a review before I see a movie. I, but I want to read a review after I see the movie to see what I missed. <laughs> what, sure. Or what I, you know, can this critic... Uh, illuminate something for me, clarify something for me, make me think about the movie in a different way than I did before. This is why I haven't read your Flower Moon <laughs> review yet. Either of you, both of you have very nice articles about this. Won't touch them until after I see the thing. But good for you. I'm looking forward to them. All right, Mr. Malton, the podcast is Malton on Movies, which you co-host with your daughter, Jessie, uh, who we'd like to thank so much for putting this together. Uh, you're also on Patreon, if I'm not mistaken. That's true. And folks can read your latest reviews at leonardmalton.com. Uh, anywhere else where people should be uh, reading you or following you? Are you on social media or anything of that nature? 
yeah, I'm I'm on social media at Leonard Malton. Uh, pretty much, uh, and my daughter Jessie uh, is the one who makes me seem contemporary and relevant. <laughs> even, you know, even when I'm not. <laughs> well, again, we thank we thank her for for helping uh, helping us make this happen. Uh, I'm Fun City Cinema on Instagram, Jason Dash Bailey on Letterboxd and Blue Sky. And uh, on Letterboxd, you can find under my list the top fives for every episode of the show. Mike, where can people follow you? I am at Brainwashed Lib on Twitter. And don't forget that we are on Substack, a very good year.substack.com, where paid subscribers get bonus episodes, bonus writing, and much more. Mike, before we go, what's your favorite movie of 1935? I mean, you know, I like to pick documentaries a lot of times, but all the documentaries this year are fucking garbage, except for there's one about uh, some English people making a train. Okay. And that documentary is really pretty amazing because they show it like cutting out all the parts and pieces. But uh, my favorite movie of 35 is called Happiness, which I actually didn't realize was a 35 movie because apparently it was the last Russian silent film. So I sort of think about it more in relation to like Hoxon or something, you know, one of the earlier sort of things. But it's a satire. It's called. I assume there's a lot of jokes we don't get because it's a Russian satire from the 30s. Sure, sure. But so much of it is human. So much of it is about people and about greed and about how people react to that and about, you know, collectivization. And there's so many things in it that are just about human relations. Um, that it really, you know, to me, I think it still works. There's also like, there's just all kinds of wild characters and, you know, I love Russians and their fucking cameras, man. And the way they do, like, it's just, it's, it, it really feels like people who had mastered the silent form. Mm-hmm. Uh, and to be honest, I was sort of surprised it came out in the same year as like Bride of Frankenstein. And, right. you know, like you were saying, they had also mastered sound by then, you know, right. they're introducing music and scores and stuff like that. So I was surprised to see it in the 35. In Japan and China, they uh, were still making silent movies in 1935. Right. Yeah. Well, and, you know, like I told Mike when we were talking about this beforehand, we are still a year away from uh, Chaplin doing Modern Times. Like, it was not entirely out of the question to do a silent movie. It was just very unusual here in in the (laughs) U.S. It kind of threw me off, but I was really happy to see it on the list when I was looking at, at movies from 35. It's a great, great. example of filmmaking. Good for it's you. It's a great example of storytelling, and it's a weird movie, and I love it. <laughs> How about you, Bailey? What's your favorite from 35? You know, the 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 easy answer is A Night at the Opera, um, but since we already discussed it at length, I would like to circle back to The Man on the Flying Trapeze because I love Fields almost as much as I love the Marx Brothers, and this really is about as sort of pure and uncut as, as you got of fields in in this era i think maybe second only to um uh um, to you uh to never give a sucker an even break well no i was gonna say in terms just of 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 feeling like personal to him like i've i've read some you know uh his grandson ronald who's written about him so elegantly uh makes a really compelling case that this was kind of a personal picture for him that there are some subtextual things happening that were very similar to to his own life and so for an artist we don't think of as being a particularly personal comedian i i really appreciate what he's got going on in this movie which is also extremely funny and has some great field set pieces and oh yeah wonderful henpecked husband stuff and all the stuff you're seeing a wc fields movie for um, Mr. Malton, one other thing before we go, um, I, I've mentioned on the show, uh, that the Marx brothers were my 
personal entry point into classic Hollywood. I've never shared this story on the air, which is that the first time I saw them when I was eight years old, uh, I saw just a clip of them in something or other. And I asked my dad, who, who is that? What is that? And he told me that they were the Marx Brothers. And I said, I want to know more about them. He took me to the Wichita Public Library, uh, took me into the film history section where I would spend so much of my teenage years. And we checked out this book, The Great Movie Comedians by Leonard Malton, um, which I took home and I devoured. I must have read it a dozen times. I checked it out and checked it out and checked it out. I still have much of this book <laughs> and the facts within it committed to memory. Um, this was the first film history book that I ever read. And this is what I do now. And you gave me that. And I, I, I wanted, we wanted to have you on the show because I knew you'd be a wonderful guest, but I also wanted to have the opportunity publicly to thank you for opening this door to me and to so many other cinephiles and not only to open the door, but to wave all of us in that, that, that your approach to this stuff has always been so welcoming um, and, and to just share the love of this material. Um, and a lot of us were brought into it that way. And, and, and we thank you for, for giving us that. You have no idea how much that means to me, Jason. Uh, it's, it's, I'm really moved. I'm touched and moved by uh, what you just said. And, and it's the, it fulfills my fondest, uh, wish. I mean, why bother? Why write a book like that yeah. if not to try to turn people on and, and uh, introduce them and bring them into the tent, as, as P.T. Barnum used to say? Yeah. Well, you've, you've, you've been doing it for, for decades now, and, uh, and we thank you for, for all of that. Um, and for coming on the show. And for coming on the show. Thank you again for coming on. <laughs> I've had fun. Great. I, I'm, I'm so glad to hear that. Thank you, Mike. Thank you, Jason. And thank you for listening. It was a very good year